welcome to uh, this Academy of Ideas explainer debate, uh, Big Tech Platform Publisher or Poison. I'm Rob Lyons and I'm the Science and Technology Director at the Academy of Ideas. Um, there's been a lot of discussion about the role of big tech in recent years. The so-called FANGs with two A's, that's Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix and Google, have grown enormously in the past decade or so. Our devices, our communications, what we watch and what we buy, how we find information on the internet are dominated by these companies. Not only in the most obvious ways either, Facebook also owns Instagram and WhatsApp. Google owns YouTube. Amazon not only sells us everything under the sun, but it also provides server facilities for uh, websites. And Amazon Web Services is the biggest host of online services. So if you throw in Twitter to that crowd, but as perhaps the leading place online for people to discuss the world, then you've got pretty much an oligopoly of great swathes of everyday life in the Western world, particularly during a pandemic when we can't see each other face to face. And I haven't even mentioned Microsoft. So the power of these companies and the way they use our data has long been a, a cause for concern. A sitting president of the United States can be kicked off their platforms, as can an Ofcom regulated radio station, talk radio. The wrong information can be labelled with a warning or even removed. Apple and Google, which dominate smartphone operating systems, can tell governments exactly how they should build smartphone apps to combat COVID-19. A rival social media service, Parler, can be removed from the internet temporarily by Amazon Web Services and taken off smartphones by Apple and Google. And just in terms of financial power as well, the top five most valuable companies in the fourth quarter of 2020 by their market capitalization were Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Alphabet, which is the parent company of Google, and Facebook. And two of the next three slots were taken by Tencent and Alibaba, two Chinese tech giants. So these companies have enormous power. Are they too powerful? Are they using their power wisely? What does it all mean for the freedom, for our freedom to discuss ideas? Uh, the format of this debate is intended not simply to discuss those issues, but also to try to explain some of the ideas and terms that are floating around at the moment and what the implications are for these companies and for society. So I've got a very good panel to, uh, to kick the discussion off. I'll, I'll introduce them into, in alphabetical order, but uh, I, I may start the conversation elsewhere. So uh, Tamandra Harkness is a journalist, writer and broadcaster. She's presenter of Radio 4's Future Proofing and How to Disagree. She's a comedian whose latest show was Take a Risk, and she's the author of Big Data Does Size Matter. Her new series, Steel Manning, about how we conduct debates, has recently launched on Radio 4. Nico MacDonald is a visiting fellow at the School of Arts and Creative Industries at the London South Bank University. He's co-author of Big Potatoes, the London Manifesto for Innovation. That means bit of consultant in this area for, for decades. As he, as he admitted in the chat earlier, he used to, he used to consult for the Pet Shop Boys. Anyway, uh, Andrew Olowski is founder of Think of X, a new research network devoted to new thinking on technology, policy and markets. He's a regular contributor to the Sunday Telegraph. He's the former executive editor of The Register and assistant producer of All Watched Over by Machines of Loving Grace. So uh, the format for this one would be a little bit different to some of the ones that uh, 
AOI debates that we've done so far, because rather than having introductory speeches, I'll just have a conversation with the speakers first, um, just to get the ball rolling, and then it'll be over to you for your points and comments and questions uh, in particular. So no question is too daft as far as I'm concerned. Right. Okay. Hello, team. Right. Hi there. <laughs> right. So, uh, first of all, I'll throw one to, to Nico. Um, how did big tech get so big? And is it really a problem? Uh, it, I mean, isn't it true that big is beautiful? Have we benefited from the sort of scale of their services? Or do you think that's becoming a problem? Uh, no, in many ways, big is beautiful. And, you know, to be honest, I think at least the engineers and software uh, engineers, data analysts and so on, who have been running the internet and all the associated services during lockdown are the ones we haven't been clapping for, not that I necessarily approve of clapping for everybody, but uh, no, it's remarkable. And what we're seeing now is the fruits of really 70 years of development of information communication technology, which started, I mean, you can go back to Charles Babbage and Ada Lovelace, but really started at uh, Bell Labs after the Second World War and arguably uh, places like University of Pennsylvania during the war. Um, and, you know, although most people think the internet's, you know, as old as when they started using the web, actually, it's uh, over 50 years old now. Um, so the term big tech, which we're using, although I hate to be critical of uh, our fine hosts, I think is becoming increasingly uh, meaningless. Uh, you know, essentially, it's like saying big steam in the 1890s or big electricity in the 1940s. Um, but what we're seeing now is really uh, a rollout that's been a combination of innovations in network technologies and communications in hardware and software uh, design and operating systems and so on. And also in user interfaces, which is not well understood uh, as being a key facilitator of the network age. Uh, as well as things like always on networks, which is both broadband and four or five G and so on. Um, but we're seeing that in combination, obviously, with a rising level of wealth in general among the population, um, but also particularly in the context of social media with a decline of trust in media. And this was being commented on by Glenn Greenwald, uh, who most people will know of uh, for uh, his work with Edward Snowden and so on on the media show on Radio 4 this week and talking about the way the media sees this as being social media has led to people moving away from mainstream media. Uh, whereas I would argue it's the other way around that technology doesn't at least initially drive society, society drives technology. And we've been trying to uh, network and innovate around uh, uh, the, the internet for well, pretty much as long as the internet's existed. Email was invented in the early 70s. Mailing lists followed that. Then services like bulletin boards and the well, which some people will know of, the whole earth electronic link, uh, then CompuServe and AOL, Delphi, and many other things. So we've been trying to do social media or social networking online for a long time, but really a combination, I think, of technological and design developments, as well as rollouts of infrastructure combined with people's uh, increasing lack of belief, particularly in mainstream media, as it's pejoratively called. Uh, and you can, I think, tie that to a decline in belief in big ideas and paradigms, the left-right post-Cold War world. Um, so I think social media is in a way an accident. You know, as we know, 
Twitter started off as another project and pivoted. Facebook was, am I hot or not? Um, uh, don't answer that. Uh, and uh, you know, we were trying to do social networking with sixdegrees.com in about 1997. And you know, we all remember Feedster, uh, Friendster, I mean, so some of you will. So it's really very accidental where we've got to. Is it a problem? I think it is a problem to some extent that corporations have such control over critical media. But I think we need to remember that corporations have often been in that situation. The major US networks were created often by corporations. Uh, Westinghouse created NBC, for instance, uh, in order to sell televisions and radios and so on. Um, CBS likewise. Uh, big newspapers have often been owned by uh, industrial moguls. And in fact, the Wall Street Journal today is owned by Jeff Bezos. Uh, anyone heard of him? So I, I'm more worried about the power of the state. And I'm also most worried about the degree of uh, callousness with which people will allow our right to hear what is published on social media, hear or read or see. Uh, they just think it's irrelevant if it's Milo Yiannopoulos or Donald Trump or uh, someone else you don't like, it's absolutely fine that they get hoiked off the platform. Um, and I think that's a very, uh, uh, shows bad faith on the part of people who don't want to engage in debate. And it also shows uh, a sort of lack of understanding of history that often when it's people you don't like that they get rid of first, then it's people you do like they get rid of um, subsequently. So, Tamandra, you can pick up whether big tech is a bad thing, but I also want to uh, talk to you about the importance of it right now as well, because you wrote a very good article in Unheard about our reliance on the platforms like Zoom, but also on social media and whatever, and what the implications are for that. So, uh, yes, the floor is yours. Uh, okay. Um, yeah, well, big tech is... It, it does feel a bit like a fact of life now. I, I think perhaps Nico obviously has known about this stuff for much longer. So uh, knows about lots of things that were probably quite niche when they first came out. But I think the thing is, it, these things have become completely mainstream now. That, you know, my my stepmom set up a family WhatsApp group. Like it, it, it's not, it's no longer something for people who are technically minded. It has become the default way that we all connect with each other. And I think when I was looking at this really before COVID came along and lockdown happened, and it was striking how much of our everyday interactions, not only with institutions or with the news or with entertainment, uh, are now conducted through. <laughs> God, I've been upstaged by many things in my time, but um, <laughs> never by cables before. Um, they, they, our relationships with institutions and businesses uh, and uh, news and entertainment do by default tend to happen now through digital media and there's a couple of differences from what went before. I mean you can look at news media for example and say well yeah but in the early 20th century most people in the UK for example read a paper that was owned by one of I think four men. So it, you know, it's not like there was a proliferation of sources of information and points of view necessarily, uh, but, and that was top down. So, you know, you picked your paper, but then you got the same thing in the same order as everybody else who read that paper. 
Uh, whereas now we pretty much all have our own individual channel for news and entertainment, and that's partly curated by algorithms are going, oh, you liked this, so you like that. It's partly curated by who you happen to follow or interact with and partly by your own tastes. So we all have these very individualized relationships through the technology, uh, and not only with institutions and news and media and entertainment, but also with each other. So we have this, if you like, this flat peer-to-peer -peer network of interactions. And there are very positive things about that. I mean, yeah, if, if things come up through the broadcast channels or through newspapers and somebody wants to dispute them, there is a ready-made platform out there, a number of ready-made platforms, and you can come out and say, well, no, we, we don't accept this way of looking at the world. Maybe we have data of our own that we want to share with you. Maybe we have another story. And, and one thing I think is happening is simply that there's a new kind of public space, which is digital, and that is being negotiated. So you know, the fact is that anybody does kind of have access to it, certainly immediately. And, and that is a kind of mass participation, a mass access to platforms, which is, I think, quite new. I mean, probably the newest thing since, I don't know, maybe the 17th century when pamphlets were being printed and censorship was removed for a while and anybody could print anything and mm. it. Uh, and there was a lot of literacy and so on. Um, but yeah. the flip side of that is that relationships through digital media are, I mean, I don't, I don't want to kind of fetishize the being in person in a room because, you know, here we are having a perfectly good meeting on Zoom. But I do think, I do think there's something special about being in a room with people. There's something very unsupervised and spontaneous. And I think setting aside for a second what big tech and all the government can do to censor and control and remove people from those public spaces, which, you know, is really important to discuss. But there's also something about the way of interacting through media, which is, uh, which is atomizing, which is isolating, which gets in between you and the other person by virtue of being more controllable. Because if you have conversations with people all the time through WhatsApp or texting, which a lot of us do, even before lockdowns came along, you can, you can think about what you're going to say. You can have a little think about what the impact's going to be. If you're in a room with a person, you, you spontaneously talk and you see what the reaction is. Maybe it's not quite what you planned and you deal with it. Uh, and you, you, you do have to deal much more with the, the mess and unpredictability of yourself and fellow humans. And so I do think that's something that's, that's changing society and also is a response to changes in society. I mean, I, I think Nico's right to say it's not driven by technology. Technology is adapting and developing to respond to what we want to do as humans. And I'm afraid one of the things we want to do as humans is to back off from the unpredictable and the messy uh, and feel that things are a bit more controllable and a bit more mediated. Um, and that's one of the things technology is doing. So I hope I haven't taken us too far off the main topic because I, I do think it's important to talk about things like freedom of speech and whether big tech has too much control over what are de facto public spaces. But I also think that there are kind of subtle and important new things about social relationships which shape the technology just as much as the technology shaping the relationships. Right, okay. Andrew, hello. Can, can we hear you? Can you hear me now? 
Yes, yes. Uh, okay, so respond to any of that, but also it'd be good to move on to this platform and publish this thing at, uh, towards the end of your comments, perhaps, I don't know. Sure, yeah, yeah, sure. Um, well, Nico's, um, I think, really nice list of, of innovations in, in internet <laughs> and social media technologies can kind of stopped around 25 years ago, which I think is a huge, has been a huge issue for me in my writing and research is that innovation in this space really stopped, I mean, with about in the, in, the, in the 80s or 90s, that's when the last protocols were developed. This is important because we'll come into this in a moment, but there's a distinction between I'm chatting to Nico in Tamandra on the telephone. I don't expect the government to interfere with our speech. They can't even hear what we're saying, or at least I hope they can't. Whereas we're now talking in public um, and what we do is very visible, but we have this kind of peculiar um, wish, which I think is a human desire and, and, and should be fulfilled and isn't being fulfilled, of being able to sort of direct and control our, our own speech much more. Um, the problem with the, the, the lack of investment and innovation in, in the internet has been that the protocol stopped in around the mid 90s. What you could then got was private kind of fiefdoms, plantations, if you like, Twitter, Facebook, which through the network effect, aggregate a lot of innovation that would have taken place in another, you know, normally. So, so telephone networks, our social media isn't like more like WhatsApp, it's much more like Twitter, where speech is tolerated and then suddenly arbitrarily people are thrown off. I mean, I think a lot of people got a shock when Trump was um, deplatformed last week, but he was a part of this great wave. I found it quite cowardly, really, because it's like he's dead and now they're jumping on the body. <laughs> That's very brave. Um, I also heard of, you know, Republican candidates being, having their insurance revoked. It was this great wave of revulsion against, um, you know, Trump's brand of conservatism. And I think social media got caught up in that. Um, but one of the consequences of the lack of innovation is that we can't, we, we're not using, we're looking at Twitter, but we're not talking to each other via a federated network, a distributed network, like the telephone network, that the government really wouldn't have any interest in, in, in peeking at. And um, to be honest, um, somebody like a telco doesn't really have any interest in censoring us either. What we've got then is, is kind of private, large private plantations. And they're trying to resolve this impossible line, which is they're effectively responding to whoever shouts loudest at them last, and they'll respond to that. But I don't think there's um I don't think there's a happy medium. I don't think they'll ever resolve it. And in terms of kind of I'm always optimistic with technology because we're just at the infancy of the internet and so much hasn't been invented yet. Not only that, but a lot of what was invented in, in the period that Nico talked about was thrown overboard in, in, in an attempt to get it working. And we now realize we have to get it back. If you're curious what this might be, you're looking at it. There's a fraction of a second delay in all our video where it should be completely real time. And putting that in place is extremely difficult and kind of the next big war between China and America. China, America doesn't really have a plan how to do it. China can do telecoms much better now. It's actually thought about this stuff we've not wanted to think about for 25 years. Um, but back to the issue of publisher, I mean, they're, they're walking this line, which is, you know, it's impossible and impossible for them and impossible for us. What happened was that laws were created, which a legal framework was created in the late 90s uh, through the CDA Communications and Decency Act in, in America. And I must say, I'm, I'm kind of I'm wary of 
citing this, but I have to because it's what the rest of the world copied effectively. I'm very exciting it because there's a, a very important American context of the First Amendment underpinning this. But it was a very, I thought, wise law at the time, which was essentially um, a get out of jail free card from vexatious litigation, which would have crushed small internet companies. Um, and that kind of allowed a lot of experimentation and growth with what kind of business you can do and what you can host and so on. And that's been under intense pressure because the courts of all American courts have always um, put the First Amendment first. So <laughs> I think it's wrong to think of the Internet as being an unregulated space. It's specifically regulated for speech, um, which makes Twitter's behavior kind of interesting in that context. But it's also, and I must draw attention to the back page case, which is when the first holes in this started to appear. Courts have been so keen to um, uphold the, 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 the exemption from CDA, CDA that um, the back page case came up, and this was a documentary in which it was an atrocious case of trafficking, uh, in which the back page classified site was doing all it really could to facilitate um, the trafficking and abuse of, of minors. Um, and the court said this is one of the most repulsive cases we've ever heard. One of the, it was raised by three minors, three girls. One had been beaten eight hundred times. Um, and the court said, "I'm sorry, there's nothing we could do." Now this network was closed down, but it wasn't closed down through internet laws. It was closed down through existing laws that were there. So a small hole was then punched in it about two or three years ago, um, with a specific exemption for sex trafficking and so on. Um, then Trump arrived and said this noticed that conservatives are being pushed off the network and Trump supporters are pushing out. And he said, well, just get rid of the whole thing. Uh, and that's kind of where we are. Um, I mean, just briefly, I don't see a, I don't see a happy resolution to this. Normally, I'm, I said I'm optimistic and usually there's some kind of technical, technological innovation, which we haven't tried yet. And there's lots of those and federated networks that, that look much more like a telephone network. Or there's some economic model. And again, we haven't tried lots of those either. Um, and I'm very happy for kind of things to be at breaking point because I, I'm personally disappointed if in 50 years time we haven't kind of blown up the internet and then rebuilt it at least about three times. We, should, we shouldn't be precious about what we've got today. If it wants to be resilient, we have to keep trying new things. Um, but I'm not optimistic because I think the forces that are uh, lined up against free speech are not going to be <laughs> swayed by, by technological or economic or legal things. It's going to be solved in the long run by having really resilient children and, and, and an education system that produces really robust and, and, and resilient children. Um, I'd, I'd like to hand it over, but I think it's, it's a problem for some of us, but not for others. But there are certain kind of fields where you can't speak freely. And this is where I'm interested to be free. We have to feel free. And if you can't speak freely in your workplace, for example, um, are you free? So yes, this put this idea of platform and publisher was uh, seen as a progressive thing at time to, to allow. Um, oh, sorry, we've got lots of people just jumping in there. If you could put yourself on mute. Sorry about that. Right. I think it's a really interesting example of some of the challenges that we're dealing with. Yes, indeed. Right. Okay. Um, sorry for the expletives and etc. And that. So, Nico, um, uh, you, please, please carry on. Respond to the discussion so far about uh, um, yeah. publishers pro, pro, and all that sort of stuff. Well, uh, I mean, I was interested in. I mean, a number of interesting points that both Andrew and Commander have made. 
I think there's, a, there's an interesting phenomenon as well. I think Taman just picked up on the idea of people being uh, sort of isolation. And I think you could argue there's a sort of broader phenomenon where we we tend to cleave towards technologies which are, you know, reflect our own kind of social sensibility and not interacting with people, uh, you know, that sort of um, neutrality of social media has a certain appeal. There is also an issue that, you know, and this, this picks up, I think, on, on what Tamandra was saying, that we're in a society where I think it's really interesting that's happened in politics. If you go back 50 years in politics to the last time America was on fire, um, it was a very political time. But although we have a very political society ostensibly at the moment, politics is no longer really about changing the world. It's more about asserting your identity. And I don't just mean identity in the traditional sense, but identity in the sense of my politics is my identity. And we know that in the United States, if you're blue or red, you know, that breaks up families, it breaks up, uh, you know, relationships with people and so on. Similarly, in the UK, are you leave or remain? Or now are you, well, lockdown or anti-lockdown maybe? And these things are not really susceptible to uh, rational argument and the influence of actually looking at the real world. And I think those behaviours fit very well with social media. And I think that's why social media has been taken up, because it allows you to express yourself in these very binary ways to be unaccountable for what you say to some extent uh, and to uh, present yourself through your politics or your ideas uh, in a very sort of um, distinct way. So I think, you know, although I agree very much with Tamandra that technology also shapes uh, society in due course, and there's a famous quote by Winston Churchill about the rebuilding of the Houses of Parliament in a, during the war that First, we shape our buildings, and after that, they shape us. And I think that's very true of technology. So I think, you know, I think this is the only time really that social media, in the form it's taken, could have evolved. And I often use the grandparent experiment. I think you've probably all got grandparents. Um, and uh, you know, if your grandparents had had access to Twitter or Instagram or TikTok, uh, you know, 70 years ago, 60 years ago, would they have behaved the same way? Uh, that we behave with it today. And I don't think anybody would imagine they would because our social mores and our constructs and so on were very different then. So I, I do think what we've evolved has been very much a product of our time and it couldn't have happened at any other time. Right, okay. I'll, I'll allow Tamantra and Andrew to have a quick uh, two penneth on that and then we'll come out to the audience. By the way, I've suspended the chat because somebody's spoofing me now. <laughs> so there we go. It's fun and games. Uh, Tamandra. <laughs> yeah, I wondered who you were saying that to. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think, it, I mean, I, I think I very much agree with Nico that it, it is about that convergence of the, what the technology can do with what we socially and maybe even psychologically are looking for it to do um but to try and draw that back i guess to to, to the kind of question of what's happening now in social media i i think it it does it's quite a revealing place that social media sits because it is in that crossover of private interaction and public life and i think one thing it reflects is that the boundary that, for example, our grandparents might have drawn between what was their private life and what's their public life has been completely changed. And that's not just the technology, although the technology facilitates that because 
through digital communications you can be kind of always with people and not and never actually with them you can be in public and also in private i mean look at the way that suddenly switching to doing things on zoom public meetings like this and also work studying means that there's no longer division between your private space and your public space i mean you know we're all looking at each other's presumably homes i mean unless anyone is staying late at an office uh which is pretty rare at the moment so suddenly you know you might have previously anonymously gone to a meeting and just met people and they wouldn't have known anything more about you than than your face uh, and what you said but suddenly we're all looking at inside each other's homes uh so i think that in the, in a sense the problem of social media reflects that that the division between a private conversation and a public discourse is no longer the same as what it was and, and i think that's quite a big loss in fact i think the ability to have private conversations where you can say what you like is under attack I mean, you look at the way campaigners are saying the fact people can have encrypted conversations the fact that people can have private conversations within um, elements of facebook for example is a problem because they might be saying racist things and we want to know about that uh, and and then you think but hang on like what what are you actually saying that if people got together in a room and said racist things privately amongst friends that that should suddenly be an offense against the law or what uh and then conversely you have people interacting on social media in what are effectively public spaces you know if you tweet something uh or mostly put something on facebook it's it's effectively public in that pretty much anyone can see it if they really go looking and yet people don't necessarily think of it like that so they might act in an unguarded way uh and then go oh i've been caught out for breaching some either social rule or an unofficial rule of the social media platform or even a law because i thought i was just talking to my friends here and yet suddenly i'm publishing uh a, a dodgy joke or something's been interpreted as a threat or whatever so i actually think that is part of the problem and in a sense the social media companies have fallen into this going hey we'll set up this space and people can come and it's like a private club uh except that if it's a private club you could leave and join another club except that because of i mean as andrew saying because of the network effect because you go to a place because of the people that are there if you if you go we don't like this we're leaving we're going to go and join parlor or whatever then first of all who's who else is going to be there i mean there's no point in starting your own club if no one else comes uh and then as we saw in fact there's there's so much monopoly power that you can set up another club and then people can close it down anyway so I, I i think i mean i slightly agree with andrew i don't think we're anywhere near solving this problem but i think there are certain lines that we have allowed to be kicked over in the sand perhaps that we need to redraw not necessarily in the same places but we need to say actually it's important we have a private space where we can say what we like actually it's important that we have a public space where we can say what we like short of actual threats uh because we need a space of public discourse and there isn't really much space for public discourse apart from the digital space so if not that then what okay right uh, andrew quick thoughts from you and then i'll go out to the audience yeah i was going to actually start with this anecdote is that i don't know what each of your very first memories are when you were about two or three 
you know, that kind of primordial swamp at the back of your brain where there might be a shape or a moment. But one of mine is quite specific and it's quite bizarre. Um, I was around two in a friend's house with my mother when I shouted something across the room to, to her. And I was startled to discover that people in the same room could hear what I was saying. Up until that point, I thought, when you looked at somebody in the eye, which of course none of us can do on Zoom, um, when you look at somebody in the eye, nobody else in the room can hear you. And um, that is a bizarre thing, I don't know, throw that in there, but I wonder how much of um, the problems we discuss in social media might be might be solved by um, by having that kind of sophistication, uh, which we don't have in real life, because surely technology should be building lots of things we can't do in real life. Um, just a quick memory. I mean, I, I was in Silicon Valley in, in, in the early 2000s when the, the social networking bubble um, came up. And before then, everyone was using, as Nico said, um, chat and so on. And um, I remember, it, some of you might remember Howard Dean's run for the Democratic nomination in 2004. He's running in 2003. It was around the time of the Gulf War. Um, that fueled such an optimism with progressive types that they really thought that this was their tool and they could transform politics with it. What I was really hearing was that here's a kind of a magic lightsaber that will save us. It will do some piece of magic that will the coalition building, the act of persuasion that effective politics needs, reaching out to people who don't necessarily agree with you and building those really strong coalitions to make lasting change. They always talk about lasting change, but I don't think they know what it means. Um, when Trump got elected, there was this massive screeching sound. This is awful. Like, we only thought nice people would use these tools. Now these awful Trump people are using these tools. And there's been a kind of a huge, I can smell the rubber of, you know, the tires screeching and reversing um, since then. Can I just question, can I just throw something? I'm not trying to troll, but, but um, why would social civil discourse exist in social media anyway surely it's just going to become a massive shit show anyway after time i find this idea that oh it's awful we're all we're all locked in therefore we can't have meaningful discourse that's a real stretch for me to believe people are writing and listening and reading and thinking all the time i can't wait to get back to a real room full of people but the idea you you have meaningful discussions on twitter is quite surreal to me can i just throw that in? <laughs> i enjoy it i enjoy the I enjoy the jokes. I think people are enormously funny. I think it actually shows people's creativity massively, but it's not the place, surely it's not the place you go for sophisticated, nuanced political discussions. Right. Okay. That's, that's plenty of food for thought. Rob, I might just note that uh, lots of my friends who were social media advocates in the sort of late noughties and so on, and very much as Andrew said, thought this is the best thing since sliced bread and it's going to you know, like television was going to do in the 50s, create world peace and so on. Uh, and very much as people on mailing lists did in the uh, late 90s, which Andrew will, will remember when people started spamming mailing lists, they ran away when the hoi polloi arrived and uh, they've now disappeared with all their aspirations for yeah. world peace through social media. Uh, it's very disingenuous, well, they were very disingenuous. Where have they gone, Nico? Because... <laughs> Where have they all gone? Right, enough, to, enough chit chat between you lot. Um, <laughs> right, okay, so uh, over to the audience now. So, James Pat. James. Hello, I think I've done the thing that I've done before and unmuted myself at precisely the moment you <laughs> unmuted me, with the result that um, we've ended up, uh, I've ended up remuting myself. Mm -hmm. 
very interesting discussion incidentally uh, uh, one of the things that has been mentioned by i think at least one and possibly two of the speakers and um, which is of some importance is the network effect which is the effect whereby the more people that join a particular network the more attractive it is and the more further people that join it creating quite a strong positive feedback effect uh, that is of course is one of the things that leads to monopolies and it doesn't work just for social media it also works for commerce and so amazon people buy stuff on amazon because that's where you can buy all the stuff and people sell stuff on amazon because that's where everybody buys the stuff and so forth one of the things that supports the network effect and in many ways is necessary to support the network effect is is what's popularly termed but i think wrongly termed intellectual property the rules that prevent other people from abstracting that information and reinterpreting it without the permission of the people who run those services those rules create uh, monopolies and those monopolies then have a great deal of power and contrary to what I think um, the naive left often think, it's not the case that they, those monopolies usurp the state's power. Rather, those monopolies and the state collude to exclude other people who want to exert power. And that is a particularly severe danger. Is there much, therefore, to be said for seeking to undermine the mechanics such as so-called intellectual property by which monopolies can be sustained rather than by doing things which uh, merely enable one um, set kind of centralized power to overtop another okay uh, uh, thanks uh, james um, emma gilland uh, if you'd like to so i want to first of all say that i don't think it's right that obviously everything's going on with censorship but i think as Tamandra kind of touched on, there was a time when social media, um, before I started really using it, but it switched from what was more a private space to a public space. So my point is, are we asking too much for social media not to be regulated? Because it's now given a lot of people a lot more power to influence other people. And is this really what free speech, when it was first defined was really meant that people should be protected in having this much influence or is the issue more that it's then filtrating down and affecting what is seen as acceptable and what people can say in like everyday life and just kind of your thoughts on that okay brilliant thank you very much indeed uh lucy taylor um my question is uh it relates to i've been thinking about the argument that twitter facebook etc private companies and so they can do what they like um, in theory, and the sort of free market response, it seems to me, is to just set up a competing company, um, which, you know, sounds easier said than done, perhaps. Um, but I read about, read an article about Tim Berners-Lee's planning on setting up a new internet, and I was just wondering what the speakers thought the possibilities were and the scope of setting up competing, be it a whole entire internet or just simply companies to compete with Twitter, uh, Facebook and so on that don't rely on platforms like the App Store uh, to to be accessed. Okay, brilliant. Thank you very much, Lucille. Um, Giovanni. Yes, thank you. So don't you think that you know the, the fans of Facebook and all these companies, they aren't they victims of our natural tendency of pointing fingers to, to people instead of us realizing that we vol voluntarily put out first all, all of our information um, in you know all these uh, companies but also enable the possibility for us to be censored and 
you know, the, the, all, the, all of this is rooted into that we do not read into the, the terms of agreements, but nonetheless, we go ahead and, and you know, we cry a little bit when we see that we're being censored and their information is being public. Okay, thank you very much, uh, very useful. Uh, Claire Fox. Thanks, everyone. Um, right, so first of all, I, I'm a bit of the elephant in the room, but I'd just like to say how disconcerting it was when we just got Zoom bombed, right? And the reason why it was disconcerting was because we were trying to have a meeting and some people tried to disrupt it and stop it, stop the conversation. Might even be doing it now. Um, and, um, and then we had to suspend the chat because we weren't able to carry on because it got hacked. And the reason I'm saying that is because I think there is a sort of frustration because we have this technology, we want to be able to use it, and then stupid things like that happen. And it feels to me... Um, a little of that has happened in relation to what's happening with Twitter and Facebook and YouTube in terms of people's frustrations that that I, I, I thought it was interesting that Andrew said, you know, why would you expect there to be civil conversation on Twitter? And he said, I'm looking forward to real life debates and, you know, going back and writing articles and there's a lot of things being written. But actually, for millions of people, it's become a, the only place they can speak. You know, it's become an organising tool. It's become the public square. You know, politics doesn't afford much else. And therefore, if you, you might only have a, a few hundred followers on Twitter, but you can interact with people who are famous or, or you can say what you think to your few hundred followers. You can join in these conversations. During lockdown, that's been, of course, even more intense because there's been a, a sense in which you couldn't do anything else but use social media in that way. But actually, it's been, to a certain extent, liberating. And people have met, you know, I, people may or may not know, but somebody died who recently of cancer and the outpouring of grief for her on social, on Twitter was uh, somebody called Nikki Sticks. And most of us had never met her, but I felt as though I knew her, but because for the last four years, I've had a lot to do with her on social media. So... I think we're underestimating the psychological hit there's been of having that taken away, you know, of just feeling that the one or two places that people felt they had. Now, of course, I understand technically it's owned by private companies and why should Twitter have to tolerate me or, you know, or trolls or they decide what they want. We can all say that, but it doesn't take from the fact that yet once more, for ordinary people, I don't mean Trump losing his, his platform, but for ordinary people, the spaces that they have had access to to express their views have now been basically shut down and they've been told to shut up. And every single political intervention has been to say that if you say the wrong thing, you will be silenced. And I think that that is what we should be arguing against, even if technically I would like a, you know, it to happen in real life, it doesn't mean that this hasn't had a big political impact on people. And it's driving then, just the final thing, everyone in that kind of camp, as it were, who was so frustrated, simply seem to be going onto other platforms that are more encrypted or more hard to close down. But some of that leads them down into some rabbit holes of some rather dark web places, right? So we're driving people away from the public square and open debate into echo chambers, some of which can be pretty nasty, dark places. And I think that's a very dangerous place to be. Brilliant, that's very useful. Thanks very much. Uh, 
Stuart Whiten. Yeah. Um, I, I'm just looking at uh, something to do with Twitter here. I, I'm on Twitter, um, but I don't really have a Scooby how to use it. And I've been on it for 10 years, so I should, I should, uh, I should get with the program. Um, but I'm, I'm mentioning Twitter because this, this was sent to me. I, I mean, I was a bit shocked with the Twitter thing with Trump. I must say, I, mean, I wrote an article about it, knowing absolutely nothing about big tech. But in a bit of a kind of panic uh, uh, way, I suppose, in terms of it does seem that having stood on street corners selling newspapers for you know, what seemed like half of my life, um, you do think Facebook and things like this are great because you can potentially have an audience that sprouts around the world and so on. Um, and the extent to which this can be uh, regulated and the extent that it is regulated, I think that's worth perhaps bearing in mind how many, how much can it be regulated when there's billions and billions of people on it? I'm not entirely sure, but anyway, I'll just, I'll just mention this because uh, it surprised me. This is somebody got in touch with me who wants more censorship on Twitter and Facebook. Um, and you'll, you'll understand why when I read it. So she, she sent me this tweet. So there was this tweet, uh, which she made a complaint about. And the tweet says, uh, there is a virus that is a thousand times more deadly than COVID-19, the white virus. Carriers tend to be hideously ugly within and without, hideously selfish, hideously inferior and hideously white. Never underestimate the malice and ugliness of these people. Right? And somebody sent this in and said, I want to complain about this. And Twitter says, no, no, that's not going to happen. She then completed somebody else. And then this was the explanation. They said, thanks for contacting Report Farm for contact. I've had a look at the moment you sent across. It doesn't seem like it breaches any of Twitter's community guidelines. Twitter's hateful conduct policy applies to members of a protected group. This includes races which have been historically oppressed and marginalized, which white people have not. For this reason, Twitter would consider this comment satire. And I kind of liked that because I thought, yeah, I mean, that should be what it's like for loads of things is just say this comment should be considered as this person is a knob uh, and that's the end of the matter. But that's But it's just quite interesting. And this really riled this person because she's concerned about uh, anti-white racism as she understands it. And she sees this as an absolute outrage. And I suspect there's a lot of people like this who do feel that there is a complete outrage and um, but what they end up doing is they say we need to censor these people as well so that's another concern i think that because of this framework of twitter and other uh, people starting to censor i think there's a potential that that will then you know this activist group will ask for this this activist group and so on and so forth so the pressure will actually be for more censorship uh, rather than the other way around Great, thank you. Uh, two, two things on that. Um, first of all, if you, like Stuart, aren't very good with technology and you have a more basic question, please do put your hand up and, and, and ask it. Uh, and also, I think um, Neil in the chat just asked a question that, that has been going around a bit, which is about um, you know, this idea that if we've got these services that have become so important, maybe that in some way they should be you know, pub public platforms in some way that, that we shouldn't just accept them as as entirely private in this day and age and that they that either have service requirements or even they should be publicly funded or something like that. Um, so I'm interested to see uh, or hear thoughts about that as well. Um, Eve Kay is next. Uh, just on the arguments for censorship, um, one of the bigger problems is that 
they didn't happen on these platforms. They happened um, in the wider media. Um, so the the arguments against uh, Trump supporters um, and other retrograde or deplorables started in the House of Commons, uh, in bodies like Ofcom that regulate the um, terrestrial broadcasters in the UK. And they started in the, with the idea that some speech was harmful. Um, it's long been held that if you're calling for violence or in trying to incite violence, that that's harmful speech. And as we know, you know, racial uh, discrimination or um, support for grooming of children, this has all long been um, held to be harmful. But the, the, problem, the problem is, is that harmful speech is being expanded to mean literally, you know, views that don't support the current lockdown. Um, it, virtually anything can now be seen as harmful if it's deemed misinformation. So in effect, alternative political voices are being censored on, on the basis that they are harmful. And that's a, that, that very much started outside of big tech, outside the platforms. And therefore, any discussion really about uh, the, la the squeezing of discussion and debate on, on, on the major platforms also has to take into account it's out there in the mainstream. And that's kind of where it started. Okay, brilliant. So what I'm going to do now, uh, while um, people start sticking their hands up again, is come back to the uh, panel. So. Um, I'll start with Andrew this time. So um, uh, just any thoughts or reactions to what you've heard so far? Thanks very much. Um, there are some great questions there. Um, I'll start with Eve. I think that's a fantastic point and maybe one I, I, I didn't make very well, but the forces on the forces that you describe are coming externally onto social media. Um, they're coming from outside social media and, and because the sudden, which I think has maybe given them power and it's to shut people up. And this is a new kind of political discourse and you win by expelling your um, kind of opponent rather than discussing you by expelling them or silencing them or cancelling them. This is quite external to, I mean, I guess this is one of the prompts of the discussion, but um, I, don't, I don't think it's something they'll ever resolve. Um, Claire's made a really interesting point, and it's a good one, that, that if, we, if we're not debating in public, we disappear down rabbit holes. Um, that's a really interesting point. I think they'll be there anyway. Um, I think there's a lot of kind of merit to what she said, where people withdraw entirely. But I don't think the... I, I think <clears throat> this is something that can't be resolved, and we'll be, Twitter will be either more bland or just as anarchic in 20 years time, but what we'll be prefer to use is, is looks a lot like WhatsApp with a public channel. I think that's what things will look like in, in 20 or so years. Um, there's a, some, somebody raised a point and I've found it quite hard to comprehend is that the tech giants are built on intellectual property. So if we destroy it, um, their power will ever weigh. Is that, sorry, gentleman there, James. Um, I think there's been a centrally long prejudice against the individual. Um, the enlightened rights are individual rights. And one of those rights, universally recognized human rights, is the propertyish right in your creations. Tech giants 
hegemony today has nothing to do with intellectual property. In fact, they spent 20 years destroying the individual's right to, um, to, to um, uh, take their goods to market. In fact, if there's an ideology or a kind of an economic ideology we have in common, it's that digital content has zero value. Therefore, they can profit from it by aggregating it. And I mention that because I don't want to add to the prejudice against individuals by destroying their rights, which is precarious and barely surviving as it is copyright. I think it should be strengthened because the, the rights of the individual should be strengthened. And there are already moves, I won't, I won't go into them here, that there should be, they should be taken away and there should be group rights. Not just individual rights of speech, but group rights, which is a very, I find a very sinister and dark turning. Um, but that leads into a, a quite a hot debate on whether you should have a property-ish right in the data you create. And I think this leads into, I'm sorry I didn't catch your name, but Tim Berners-Lee is working on the assumption that you should, you fundamentally do own, uh, you have a property-ish right or a property right in the data you create. And therefore you can, you should be able to monetize it. You should be able to withdraw it. It's yours. I mean, you've created it. Why on earth would it not be? And currently there's a kind of an enormous debate with kind of the intelligentsia and academia on one side saying, oh, it's terrible. You poor things, you wouldn't know what to do if you earned your own data. Very kind of paternalistic patronizing argument. And, and many of us, and I'm certainly one, will say we fundamentally do own our data. We own our words. That's, that, even Twitter doesn't dispute that what we post there is our copyright. We own it. Um, and I think there are kind of new, really interesting new models to be created. You'd join a union, for example, and, and you'd get a check at the end of every year if you do a funny photograph. You get nothing for, you know, you can have a 50 million views, you get nothing for it at the moment. So um, just back to James's point, I find it, we've, we've seen the almost entire destruction of the creative class, if you like, because copyright has not been respected by the tech giants. So to say they've built their fortunes on it, I think is bizarre. I think um, Tim Berners-Lee is a compromised character because he's funded by the tech giants, but kind of since Trump, he's sort of made noises that he doesn't really um, you know, like the way social media is. It's toxic, how awful. Um, I, I would support his work, but I'd also support very strongly the right that we own our, we own what we do. Okay, um, Tamandra, your thoughts. Okay, um, I think I'll come back on a, a couple of points which I are kind of related really. I mean, I, I was really struck by what Claire said about the danger that for a lot of people, social media are their only access to the public square, their, their only access to anybody beyond their immediate family and friends, maybe hearing what they have to say, uh, which you know, as I kind of hinted earlier on, I think is in a sense a new development and, and a good thing. Uh, and that if you drive people out of a public aspect of that by saying you can't say that, that you thought that was a joke, but we thought it was a threat, uh, whatever, but you know, we're going to suspend your account because we don't like what you said, then you, then you drive people into niches. But I, I think that there is a more general danger about the kind of fragmentation of public space into these digital silos and into people's individual if you like self-chosen channels within this public forest and that is that it, especially in the circumstances that we're in right now where literal physical public spaces and everyday informal interactions are very difficult and curtailed that conspiracy theories thrive because there is absolutely no break on you going down a rabbit hole and finding things which you, you may start off with perfectly reasonable scepticism about some 
uh, some discourse that you've had from politicians or mainstream media or whatever uh, and then and then you go off down a rabbit hole until you are actually thinking oh no I'm not going to get vaccinated because Bill Gates is going to inject me with a microchip which come out boldly seems crazy but actually there's probably a lot of intermediate stages which are relatively reasonable one from another and if you don't have a public space in which to other people to say come on it's like it's one thing to say I don't think those figures mean what you say they mean and another thing to say COVID is imaginary Bill Gates is trying to inject you the microchip the lizards are in charge uh, so I, I, I think this is all you know it's an extreme compounded form of the same problem but, but I think it is a real problem and that it, it's important to have a public space so to come back to Emma's question about well it, there's a difference between ordinary people interacting on a kind of equal basis and a few if you like influencers celebrities figures with a huge following who can have a huge influence uh, and if they were in a newspaper or on television then there would be regulations about how truthful they're expected to be uh, perhaps even if they're broadcast that they're expected to show some objectivity and balance at least in theory uh, and uh, and on social media there isn't because they are regarded as just an ordinary person with an opinion even if they have four million followers who treat them as an oracle and I think this that's the kind of that's one side and the other side is the very genuine thing which is a lot of people will say well I went on social media and I tried to have a civilized uh, discussion about this important issue and I was so piled on with people insulting me or threatening me or just being really horrible to me that I, I gave up and I went away because it was impossible. And, you know, you say you're for free speech, but my speech wasn't very free because I ended up having to fight off, like, you know, goblins, trolls all the time. Um, and so actually regulation, you know, you wouldn't expect to go to a public meeting and have people be able to shout you down. You would expect the chair to say, shut up, let this person have a say, shut up or get out. And, and shouldn't social media also do that to let civil discourse happen and and I think there's a real problem because although fundamentally I think it's about the freedom of people to hear things it's not about my freedom to say so much it's, it's about other people's freedom to hear and make up their own mind but at the same time you want to create spaces where that is actually practical and feasible and does happen and that people who are just trying to disrupt and shout down and threaten and intimidate can be marginalized and, and made to go away by the people using it. How you do that, I think is a genuine problem. And I don't think the answer is censorship, but I don't know what the answer is. Maybe Emma, maybe Emma can solve that. That would be good. <laughs> okay, um, Nico, your thoughts, and then we'll go back out to the audience. Yeah. Um, so to, I mean, I'll come back to pick up on, uh, just add to one or two things that Santa Mandra and Andrew have said. I think to James' point about the monopolies, does I think that does seem an accurate description of things. And I just want to quote uh, Bruce Daisley, who was the European VP for Twitter uh, for many years until recently, who was speaking on Radio 4 recently, uh, just to say James argued that monopolies don't usurp state power, but they combine with the state to exclude others. And he said, I worked at Twitter for eight years and I was constantly trying to make the case that we improved the quality of conversation there, all well and good. Um, and he said something about stopping female MPs being abused. 
that's good. Uh, and then trying to sort of have a pushback on this notion of free speech. And then he went on to say uh, the platforms have reached a stage now where to some extent they would welcome the inevitable regulation that's going to come. So essentially now they've grown up and got the big boy pants on, the platforms uh, wanna pull up the drawbridge, get regulation in, that will then close down, you know, they've been in league with the state. Obviously it's really the Democrats who are now in power who are uh, the most sympathetic to big tech, if we're gonna use that term. And I'm sure they'll be very happy to do this because it then excludes all competition. And we know that from telecoms and pretty much any other industry, big industries like regulation because they can afford it because it gives them a, a playing field that others can't access because it's too costly, too difficult, um, and they understand it. And they have, you know, shed loads of lawyers making sure that they comply with the regulation. So I think that is that is a very real danger and you know to some extent we've let these people you know do this um the point that lucy made about tim Berners-Lee setting up a new internet i think andrew's addressed that to some extent but his proposal is really about trying to get corporations and other organizations to put things in place which give people greater access give them ownership over their data and so on which is all well and good um andrew called Berners-Lee a bit compromised i think that's slightly unfair um you can be funded as the World Wide Web Consortium is by corporations without being beholden to them. But I think Tim Berners-Lee, who invented the web, and I think that's a fair thing to say in the um, uh, early 90s, uh, doesn't know what he, how he did it. And he keeps trying to repeat this. Uh, and, you know, he's very smart, but uh, he, uh, you know, I don't think he's going to achieve what he's going to do, what he wants to do, because he doesn't really know how he did it the first time. Uh, briefly, Giovanni, on um, us pointing the fingers at the fangs, I think you're completely right. Uh, the idea of big tech is meaningless, as I've argued already, and it's just trying to uh, demonize a section of industry. And I don't have any uh, particular candle to hold for Amazon or Apple, or more Apple than Amazon, perhaps. But, um, you know, it's a meaningless idea that they're responsible for these things. Um, I think to Eve's point about these debates starting offline, uh, you know, the whole debate about stopping people from speaking goes back, it goes back a long way. But when I was at college, uh, we had no platforming of Nazis and anyone who was considered right wing. I, I didn't support that. But, you know, these ideas have you know, been around a long time. In, in the early 90s, when the Labour Party was in the political doldrums, it argued that Murdoch-owned media was, you know, the problem and, you know, warping people's minds and um, stopping them from voting Labour and so on. And these whole ideas that one, people are dupes and two, that they can't handle, uh, you know, open public debate and so on about difficult issues precedes, well, the web and precedes social media. Uh, so I don't think we can put it down to, uh, you know, to the technology or, you know, I don't think it's a contemporary debate. And I very much agree. I think it was Tamandra saying that the important thing is the freedom for us to hear what other people have to say more than our freedom to have a platform. And I, I agree Twitter had the right to throw Trump off the platform. Although if you look at the post that they made to explain it, it really doesn't look like actually he did breach their terms of service, to be honest. Um, but uh, so I don't disagree that they could do that, but I do feel very strongly that 
people are being incredibly reckless with our freedom to hear things. And it's very much, I'm afraid, the liberal left of which, you know, I would have thought I was part once upon a time who are the people who are leading this. And um, it shows their intellectual dishonesty. Great. Okay. Right. So thank you all for those uh, points. I'm going to save you, let you save your powder till the end of the discussion now, and I'll just bring in a few more people from the audience. Uh, so uh, Ian Mitchell. I'm wondering what, what is the relationship between um, some of the social media platforms and, and other media platforms now? Um, so a, a quick example, I saw a debate on the BBC uh, last Sunday, which, which I actually thought was quite good. Um, but by the afternoon on Sunday, um, people have been quoted out of context on Twitter um, quite quite drastically, really, with a sort of Twitter pile on, you know, as it happens. Um, and then during the week, that story went round other media platforms, mainly television, by which time they were talking about things which never got said on the original programme. Um, and I just started to wonder what, what was happening because the, it felt like Twitter was behaving as though it was some sort of public service telling people how to think and what morality was. And, and then there was a situation where I, I looked at the BBC website and I thought this is a little bit like Twitter now because it's, it's like little snippets of information, you know, in a feed, but mostly pointless. Um, and then I started to think, well, maybe what's happened is that with media, whether it's social media or any media, the adults have kind of left the building and they've gone to some extent, maybe to radio, podcasts, a lot of spoken platforms. But there's this area which is completely regressive and playing all sorts of dangerous games with quoting people out of context when they know they never said what they're quoted as saying. Um, and yet there's a quite a mature discussion going on over here on other spoken platforms so it, it, it seems to me that i i think the, the point really i'm echoing is what was said earlier that twitter itself can't be taken seriously but yet the mainstream media platforms do take it seriously so my question you know what's happening with this relationship thank you all right great that's that's all good useful stuff uh, phil mullen pick up on or go beyond what eve was saying which i thought was very important i think uh, you know both andrew and, and nico and Amanda have all commented on it in different ways but the fact that what's going on in social media and all the all, uh, and all the sort of regressive things that are happening, particularly the censorship, uh, can't be located within those companies themselves. It's a reflection of, of broader trends which predate that. And I think that's very important when we come on to this uh, question of what can be done about it, because we all agree that these companies are extremely powerful, that they control the public square, um, uh, and that they've done something which is reprehensible in terms of crossing the line as, as, as they did a couple of weeks ago. But uh, in terms of looking at what can be done, the consequence of what Eve's saying is also that there is no fix within the social media world itself, right? That, that, that there is no solution there. And I think uh, both Andrew uh, and I think Nico particularly has commented on the fact that there's also no simple way of counterposing the state to, the, uh, to these companies either in terms of a way of, as people are suggesting, regulating as, as some sort of solution, because I think as Nico just said, it, it, actually the regulation makes things worse whenever you're trying to regulate large companies, because invariably from banking to telecoms to utility, and I would say to social media, any regulation is going to make things worse. 
uh, as in it, it makes it, it it makes it harder for challengers to actually get involved because they don't have the resources to cope with all the regulations. But I think there's an additional point which I just like to 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 uh, highlight, which is what's new about this. And and Nico again picked up on this right at the end. What's new about the political trends at the moment is that it's not just that the 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 government and the big businesses are working together. But I think one of the most troubling political features of what's happened recently is this de facto alliance, which has developed between the sort of liberal establishment, the so-called progressive establishment, and these companies. Um, uh, because if you look back at it, it's been in America, it was the Democrats, particularly the radical wing of the Democrats, AOC and, uh, and et al., who have been the ones who've been calling for um, uh, Facebook and Twitter uh, to uh, censor Trump and Trumpists and, and populists and anybody with whom they disagree. And in a sense, by doing that, they have uh, been expressive of outsourcing state censorship, in a sense, to the private sector, and also giving what these private sector companies are doing uh, moral authority. So I think that indicates in a new way just how uh, 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 false and dangerous it would be to call for uh, anybody from the right or from the left to try to regulate these uh, big companies. I think my conclusion is the only cure for the dominance and the abuse of dominance by company, by big companies is ironically a free uh, speech and a free press. Because it's only if you expose their uh, dominance and how they are doing things which are regressive that you have the possibility then of uh, creating that sort of debate where people put pressure on them and you do create the circumstances where competitors can, can grow up. Uh, I mean, uh, no one's mentioned it, but I think this little um, uh, incident recently at the beginning of the month with, with WhatsApp, whenever uh, WhatsApp announced changes to its privacy um, uh, rules, which would mean sharing more with its owner, um, uh, Facebook, that very quickly created a popular backlash and which tens of millions of people in the course of a few days joined competitors, joined uh, Signal and Telegram and so on. Now, I'm not saying they will replace it, but it does indicate that if things are exposed in the free world, in the free press, and in freedom of speech, and you challenge things, there is the potential for creating uh, alternatives. And I think that's the best way of uh, pushing back on the censoriousness which we've seen from these big companies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that, that's true. I mean, there was a quite a, a little bit of a kind of campaign last year on Twitter about people saying we're all off to parlour because we don't want. Um, this kind of censorship, which sounds good, and I joined Parlour to see what was going on. Um, as the Guardian splashed at the weekend, lots of other people, Tory MPs joined Parlour, and apparently this means they're secret fascists or something. But what I found was that the discussion there wasn't that great, because actually it was a certain kind of person who disappeared off to Parlour, and it was the same sort of, it became a necker chamber, somebody said earlier. So I wondered what any, if anybody else had joined Parlour and what their their thoughts about these things or about trying alternative uh, social media or communication strategies to kind of get around this stuff. Um, uh, so, um, Paul, Paul Butterworth. Hi. Um, yeah, so actually what I wanted to say follows on from all of those things that um, I, I remember back in, I think probably 1990, when I first discovered the, the internet as, as it was then, although I subsequently discovered that what I was doing was was dialing up to America, paying international um, phone call fees. But, um, and, you know, and it was a mixture of arguing with people about politics and sharing bad poetry, but it, but it was it was absolutely inspirational. And, um, and, and I think that, 
Twitter now, um, uh, even even now, is, is still you know, a, a really rich space in, in, in sometimes a, a similar kind of way, apart from the poetry, which is just as well. Uh, and uh, and I found that you, know, I joined Parler uh, uh, and found exactly the same thing that um, uh, that, that it's uh, you know it doesn't have that that richness. But there is still, um, I mean, you know, there are constraints on Twitter and social media about how 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 far they can go with this kind of censorship. Because if they go too far, then they will end up as a, you know, like a parlor for the you know, for, for the Democrats, as, as it were. And, and and at the same time, they're also they're interested in making money. It's, the, it's like the business of um, the capitalists would be selling um, badges to, to to revolutionaries on the on the barricades. You know that they. That they they are also the commercial entities. I, I, I think um, I mean it is, this is obviously you know, there's some doom and gloom around, around um, what's happening at the moment, but it's important to uh, to you know, to remember that there are opportunities. This, this is still a very changing space. I mean, we're talking about social media as the public space where. Um, you know, it wasn't very long ago that the public space was you know, the actual public space, and they, these are new things, and um, and they are themselves similar to uh, uh, subject to disruption in the same way as you know, Westinghouse, etc., were previously. So there are opportunities there, um, and so whilst at the same time, um, you know, if if uh, if the actual physical public space were being restricted in 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 this in, in the way in which the, the virtual space is now, you know, we'd be looking at a combination of how do we storm the public space uh, and how do we create alternative spaces. Um, I, you know, I think that those same arguments apply, but you know, possibly even more so as well because. Um, you know, in in ten years' time, or the 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 thing that is uh, the public space, you know, arguably won't be Twitter and Facebook. So there, there are technical opportunities as well as uh, you know, underpinned by the, you know, the the kind of cultural and, and political arguments that, okay. that we can uh, uh, create a new space. Right. Okay. Good. That's uh, all good stuff. So uh, I've got Neil and I've got Catherine, and then I'll bring in the uh, the panel for their final thoughts. So, Neil. I had a bit of trouble, I still have a bit of trouble with this concept of the public square because I can't actually think of a parallel in real life to what were maybe, what people are maybe describing as the public square. I see um, Twitter, I've used Twitter a little bit and for me it was just useful for finding people who had similar opinions to yourself and then you could basically research those off Twitter because obviously Twitter, you know, the format of it isn't very amenable with the character restriction, etc. So, yeah, I, I don't fully, I can't transpose Twitter onto a real life situation, to be honest, which I, I know a lot of other people, including Claire, were sort of mentioning. But in terms of big tech platform publisher poison, I could see, I can understand how it's how it's ended up this way because you know it is a platform to start with, and then I think as um, Andrew mentioned early on, there's a case of people using that platform for very you know disturbing purposes. 
so you have a responsibility i would have thought as that provider of a platform to uphold the laws in some way and i find that i think that's quite a, a difficult a difficult balance to have um so maybe as the point i was i made before is that if we if this public square concept exists maybe it should be a public service rather than a commercial service or maybe people have to pay to use it in which case you're more likely to censor your own language at the risk of losing money and getting thrown off that platform right okay that's an interesting thought as well um right we've got catherine and then i'm going to come back to the panel so uh catherine thank yeah. you um just saying to my husband it's noticeable that your audience uh here is how few people look to be under 40 and generally the younger people are driving this cancelling uh approach and culture they're also probably the larger profile of executives at twitter and google and facebook and putting a lot of pressure on the people who make policy decisions at those organizations that help kind of foster this and actually yeah, we're beginning to wonder if Twitter's actually dying, it's folding in on itself. Um, if you don't like the cancelling, if you want to see free speech, if you don't like the algorithms curating your content and the tiresome, I think um, uh, Tamandra called it the mess and unpredictability of dealing with people, which I really liked. Um, the tiresomeness of people with who don't like your opinion piling onto you, then we can do what we can always do as customers and consumers. We can walk away. And uh, uh, I don't know what people's thoughts are in terms of it's younger people, the larger who are the, the executive executives at these organisations driving and helping to shape policy. Um, and probably the liberal uh, left, and also this. Do you think Twitter will fold in on itself? Okay, okay. I, I, in terms of age, speak for yourself. I'm 26. I've just had a bit a long, um, busy life. <laughs> 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 um, right, uh, right. Um, on that uh, note, uh, I'm going to bring the, the panel back in. Probably for it'll have to be for about two minutes each, guys. So you're going to have to. Uh, Pick and choose your uh, your the things you want to say. So I'll just do it in the order we started with. So uh, Nico, Ian Mitchell's point about um, the grown-ups going to spoken word. I think that's a very astute comment. And the ridiculous rise of podcasts is never going to last, folks. Uh, it's unmanageable. Um, it's an example of that. And there was a nice comment on the Megyn Kelly show. People might know Megyn Kelly, American broadcaster, who was. Uh, one of the people featured on Bombshell, the Roger Ailes story, or the not Roger Ailes story, um, who uh, said that Twitter now is, is how the media talks to itself. And I think we do have to be careful if we think that Twitter is, you know, the world or the public square. Um, I, don't, I wouldn't add to what Phil Mullen talked about, but I think the WhatsApp privacy change was very interesting. My number of Telegram contacts ballooned at that point. So people clearly are aware of these things, which is very healthy. Um, I won't comment on Parley, but I joined it too. The Guardian didn't out me, thankfully, because I'm not important enough. 
Um, Catherine's point about young people at Twitter was interesting. I think Bruce Daisley did pick up on this, that we do have a, inverted commas, very woke group of people, not least at Silicon Valley companies, and they're going to be pretty dangerous to us rational oldies. And I'm obviously not one who talks about snowflakes, but uh, you know, it is a worry. Um, I just, just winding up, I'd just like to uh, just raise two things. Andrew's talked about the idea of federated social media services, uh, which is the idea that we might create standards which are public and open and anyone can build a social media platform and they could interoperate very much like email does and like the telephone that Andrew talked about does. Um, Jack Dorsey at Twitter's even got a working group working on this. I think it's called Blue something or other. So there is a possibility that, uh, and, and it's advantageous for them because then they don't have to be responsible for regulating things. So I'd just like people to think about the idea that maybe we could do what we did with email, which was closed in the 90s, and then we opened it up so everybody could interchange email and uh, nobody was in charge of it. And then I'd also like people to think about the idea that could we go beyond what social media does to create a way in which people could really augment their own intelligence and knowledge and collaborate using social media type tools, but to increase human intelligence and potential. And I think, you know, we talked, Andrew's talked about the idea that the internet is in its early days. The potential for knowledge sharing and real knowledge creation and collaboration is very much in its early days. And we need better than Twitter and Parley and all the rest of them. We need real human, human to human augmentation using the internet. Okay, thank you very much. Um, clearly, there is a need for a, an unwoke uh, social media platform for older people. I'm, I'm going to suggest Zimmer as the brand name. Um, right. <laughs> <laughs> Andrew. Yeah, hi. There's some, um, some really good comments there. Um, can I just pick up on a couple because it's only uh, fair to. Um, regulation is coming. Because there's the feeling that these giant tech companies are not accountable, and it's—I don't think that's unreasonable. Just treat it as a as a as a as a as, a, as an opening negotiating position. I, I see no object in principle to an online harms bill because there are a lot of online harms, but we have to preserve the freedom people have to speak about politics and speak politically and, and and not be monstered by it. I feel we're actually in for a decade of monstering. Um, uh, Joel Copkin did a wonderful interview, uh, I think it was Austin Williams Book Club, I recommend everybody goes to, to see it. I've been reading him for about eight years um, and, and writing about him and talking to him about these things, very class-based uh, issue, but he describes the Democrats as the party of the tech oligarchs. And I think it was it, a couple of you might have kind of mentioned the same thing in, in, in a slightly different way, but it's the same point. They don't have the moral legitimacy to win an argument, so they're going to use the social networks to kind of push through an agenda. Where this fascinates me is that high status opinion, um, there's a huge gulf between what people are allowed to express. You can see this in opinion polls and you can see this in real life votes where people will tell the opinion polls to something because it's a high status opinion to hate Trump, um, high status opinion to be anti-Brexit. And people will lie to a pollster and then they'll go into the privacy of a, of a, of a voting booth and actually um, express what they believe in there. So that's a diminution of the public sphere right there. <laughs> but what, what's coming down the pipe is high status opinion is, has got so many terrible ideas 
ranging from ripping out your boiler to eating insects is that this is just this is just disorizary stuff now how far how far does high status opinion try and push this through on social media now it's kind of got the reins with the democrats i, I just can't wait somebody mentioned there's a huge gap between twitter and real life boy is that ever true and i think another thing copkin said was that that gave him some hope for uh, an optimism was that people were kind of leaving higher education which is essentially the most state regulated industry there is and it relies solely on accreditation but people have this intellectual curiosity they're going to find out about philosophy about religion about morals and so on offline now once these get accredited i think that kind of the clarity uh, that copkin talks about you know high status opinion is really going to be challenged there maybe, you know maybe we don't need the internet to do it maybe it can help but that's that kind of you know that's where i'd look for for change Oh, by the way, one thing, um, I'm surprised nobody's brought this up, but um, and Ofcom published a new code on um, hate speech, and I just checked the date while, while somebody was talking. The date for the press release is Thursday the 31st of December at 11.39pm. Now, I don't know what you were doing at 20 to midnight on New Year's Eve, but I bet you weren't looking at Ofcom's site for new regulations on speech. Thank you, <laughs> Thank you very much, Andrew. Uh, last but not least, Tamandra. Uh, right, yeah, I, obviously I identify as 23. Uh, so I think that, that settles that one. Um, yeah, I think it's a really, it's a really good question. Well, well, what is this mythical real life public space that somehow exists or existed out there that that uh, social media has taken over from? Uh, to some extent, it never existed, did it? I mean, not, not in the sense that absolutely anybody could go there and have uh, a, a civilized public discourse about no matter what in an unbridled way. I mean, there the, the were demonstrations, there were public speeches, there was the speaker's corner at Hyde Park. There are there are places where you can literally go in a public space and say things, except at the moment you can't because it's locked down um, and accept that. You know, it is, it is more or less policed and there is a certain amount of disquiet about large numbers of people getting together and uh, and saying whatever they want to say. Uh, and I think, in a sense, what we're seeing with social media is that suddenly there is a sort of public space and the masses are coming into it and saying what they really think. And in many cases, it's just saying the things that people would have said in private and not even really particularly aware that you're now saying it in public until maybe suddenly somebody looks at their Twitter, at their follow account and goes, oh, actually thousands of people are paying attention to this, or I now have a YouTube channel and a million people just watched my whatever it was. And I, and I think we are, we're kind of still negotiating that. I mean, I, I think it's a very positive development that there is this, however haphazard and however in effect privately owned and however censored formally or informally, that there is a space where people can go and say, more or less what they think and I, and I think that should be defended and and protected um, I mean actually in of course in real life a lot of what we think of as public spaces are either just not even public they're actually privately owned they look like a public space but if you go there and start setting up a stall and giving out leaflets some security guard will come and say no this is private space and you have to leave or even if it is public space the local councils increasingly will come and say there's a bylaw and you can't do that so you know again there's no kind of paradisical real life public arena where you can go and be yourself and do anything all these things actually take some defense and some and some pushback 
it's so I mean what what is the answer no regulation I, I mean personally if it's if it's a choice between unofficial censorship exercised by a private company uh, in Silicon Valley or a code of law that has to be debated in Parliament and then passed by MPs I'd rather go for the latter but it's still censorship I you know I still don't think it's anything positive to argue for I, re I really take the point I can't remember who made it that what in effect is happening is that censorship is being outsourced so nobody has to be accountable but it happens anyway and the idea of harms which is this very nebulous idea uh, and you're basically saying to companies you must not allow harm to happen in your digital space otherwise you'll be punished is is a recipe for chilling and clamping down and preemptive uh suppression of debate so what what the answer is I, I don't know but bear in mind that most of these companies the ones that rob listed at the start that make all their money from data most of them are essentially glorified advertising brokers and they make their money by selling advertising space so we are the audience that they are selling we're not the customers that's why it's free to us so it's actually it's in their interests to keep people you know, on their on their land, if you like, in the, in their premises, in their private walled garden. Because if we're not there, we're not looking at that. Why is anyone going to give money? And they will collapse. Uh, and and you know, and they do. If we all up at sticks and move, then they become not a going concern. It's like trying to run a, a bar which nobody comes to. It, it it doesn't work. So there is that that kind of power. Uh, it's you know it's. It's not the, the best kind of power, perhaps, <laughs> but, but it's something. Um, but I, I think in a sense, we're in the infancy of this genuine space for public free expression. And we should, we should keep defending it and pushing at its envelope. But really this, the urge to censor, the urge to control, the urge to say, you can't say that, that's not an acceptable opinion, comes from outside the technology. And, and that's really where we have to look. I'll finish there. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you all to all of our speakers and to all of you who've chipped in um, in the course of the discussion. And apologies again for the disruption. That we have been organising uh, these debates on Zoom for for nearly a year now, and that's the first time that's happened. So normally we do manage to have very civilised. Uh, and interesting debates. And if you would like to support us in that process, then the link is in the chat to uh, go to academyofideas.org.uk forward slash support and give us a donation and uh, hopefully uh, that works because apparently somebody said that it hasn't worked for them that they, when they've tried to, to donate but we'll sort that out straight away and uh, yes so thank you all very much for all of that uh, we have uh, if you want to catch up with uh, the things that were, were, were forthcoming in terms of academy of ideas debates then do visit our page at academyofideas.org.uk forward slash events and uh, um, uh, hopefully there'll be more uh, engaging stuff for you to uh, enjoy there as well and until then um, that's the formal end of proceedings